We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. Today, we're talking with Darby Simpson. If Tractor Time is only but a part of your farming podcast diet, you may already know who he is. He does the Grass-Fed Life podcast with Diego Footer. He's also a contributor to Acres USA magazine. And what I really value about his perspective is its practicality. Through his podcasts and online courses, it's clear he wants to help equip farmers with the tools to run real successful farms, not just act out romantic Instagram versions of farming. But he's a conscientious farmer too, running a pasture-based non-GMO livestock operation in Indiana, located between Indianapolis and Bloomington. But before we get to Darby, here's a message from our sponsor. Good day, dear listener. This is Ryan Slabaugh, the general manager of Acres USA, and I'm the former host of this podcast. And I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support. We're almost to 100,000 downloads in our history, and that is no small feat. So if you've been listening for years and you've been wondering how to support us, there is a way to give back. We produce this podcast free of charge, and in order to continue doing so, we do need your support. Uh, Go to ecofarmingdaily.com slash donate. That's ecofarmingdaily.com slash donate and give any amount, uh, $1, $5, $1,000, and you will directly be supporting the idea of free education for farmers, growers, and people across the globe. Uh, The idea of free is not sustainable, so your gift, along with our sponsors and advertisers, help carry this message to new audiences and to you into the future. So that's ecofarmingdaily.com slash donate. Thank you again for listening and for your support, and have a great day ahead of you. Hey, this is Ben again. So, Darby Simpson. In this interview, we talk about everything from farm diversification to the future of farmers' markets to the impact of COVID-19. Darby's answers are thoughtful, insightful, and hopefully prophetic. And I'll let you listen on to understand what that might mean. Without further ado, here's Darby Simpson. Darby, thanks for joining us. Hey, I am absolutely thrilled to be here, Ben. For our listeners, tell us a little bit about your farming operation. Well, I think it's something a lot of people probably resonate with. Uh, I was actually in a different career and started, you know, kind of investigating farming when I got into my late 20s, early 30s. And, you know, I was a little kid, I always wanted to farm. I really wanted to farm when I was like five years old. I don't know, it was just wired up in me. I grew up on a family farm. It's been in my family since 1828. And, you know, I remember the, the first time I kind of mentioned this to my grandfather, and I can remember like yesterday, my grandfather saying, no, you don't want to be a farmer go do something else because you can't make a living in farming. And it was about 1980 and it was not a good time to be a small farmer like my grandfather was. And he was basically at the tipping point where he was ready to retire and snowbird to Florida with his friends and play golf. So I took grandpa's advice, went and did something else. But then later on in life, really kind of got the farming bug again, started doing a lot of research. And actually, initially, I started going to vegetables. Uh, We actually sold vegetables only the the first year on the farm. And then meat came later. Uh, I found Joel Salatin and Greg Judy and lots of guys like that. And 
uh, started a pasture-based meat operation, which was a part-time thing for three years. In the middle of the Great Recession, interestingly enough, I lost my job and we took the farm full-time because there were no jobs in my industry and that industry was uh, engineering. And that's what I did full-time for 10 years. We did a lot of pasture broilers, pasture turkeys, forest-raised pork, grass-fed beef, and we still do a lot of those elements today, but we don't any longer produce poultry, but we've, we've had a lot of success with our farm. And I really, you know, I pay a lot of tribute to those early adapters and, and pioneers that came before myself that laid a lot of the groundwork to, to make that possible to go out and live that dream farming full time for over a decade. And where in Indiana is your farm located? We are located in or just outside of Martinsville, Indiana, which is straight south of Indianapolis. We're about halfway between Indianapolis and Bloomington, which is where Indiana University is located. That's a pretty small town. It's only about 11 or 12,000 people. We're right smack dab in the middle of central Indiana. And in addition to running a farming operation, you, you've become an educator as well. You have a podcast, you do courses, online courses, teaching small farmers how to improve their operation. Talk a little bit about that and why you decided to make that a part of what you do. There's a number of reasons. I love to teach. I absolutely love to teach and share, and I'm a problem solver uh, to a fault. My wife would tell you that sometimes she just wants me to shut up and listen. I, I just want to fix everything. And I've had the opportunity to speak uh, at all kinds of different functions around the country, some small, some big. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to speak at Permaculture Voices 3 in San Diego. And the uh, gentleman that, that put that together, his name is Diego Footer. He was already doing a podcast with a, a guy a lot of your listeners will probably know, Curtis Stone. And he wanted to, to do one on the livestock side. He he talked with a number of different farmers and producers, and he, for whatever reason, reached out to myself and said, hey, would you like to do a podcast? And yeah, sure, it'd be fun. Uh, so we started doing this podcast, and it was a pretty big hit pretty quickly, and we kind of floated this idea of like doing a workshop on my farm, and we just got inundated with emails of people saying, yes, if you, if you put it out there, I will come. And so that's kind of what launched... I guess the educational side of things. So we did three or four workshops here. And once we had done that workshop so many times, we had a lot of people that wanted to come, but they couldn't because of geography. And it was a three day long workshop. It was intense. And you were drinking from a fire hose for three days. We decided to put it online just so that it would be available to anyone with internet access anywhere in the world. And we've you know, literally we had people come to, to workshops here from all over the country, uh, from other countries. You know, we've had people come from Canada, Chile, the continent of Africa, you name it. And then like, I don't know how many different states, but we just, we decided to record it and put it online. It was a huge undertaking. We did it ourselves, but we just wanted to really make it available. And, and kind of my whole reasoning behind this was when I started farming, there were and still are an immense number of fantastic resources on how to go raise chickens, graze cattle, etc. All kinds of great stuff on like how to farm. But there was nothing that told you how to really set up a farm business. And the farming aspect of things is like maybe a third to 40% of the battle. 
the rest of it is learning to think like a CPA and making good marketing decisions and coming up with marketing material and trying to figure out like which farmers markets stink and which ones are going to be successful and how much product to sell in bulk and what restaurant account to fire because they don't pay on time. I mean, that's the non-sexy stuff that a lot of guys just don't talk about. And that's where Diego and I focused a lot of our energy because it was just so lacking. And it's frankly, it's a ton of, you know, of our, what we call our big course, which is our, our uh, profitable, profitable pastured livestock course. That's, that's probably about 65% of that course is all the stuff I just mentioned, not like, here's how you go raise a chicken. I mean, that's in there too, but that's kind of the, the genesis and the reasoning why, you know, behind why we started grass-fed life. Both you and Diego have written for Acres USA magazine. And I think what I really like about your perspective and Diego's perspective is sort of a, a, a blunt honesty about farming. You know, talk a little bit more about that, about sort of the romantic, romantic ideal of farming and then sort of the harsh reality. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Any farmer who's being honest will tell you that they have romanticized farming to a fault, myself included. And that's actually, that very point is actually something I talk about in the workshops I've done, the speaking engagements I've done, and in our online course. I tell people all the time, like you can't romanticize farming very much. A little bit's okay. There is something romantic about it. It is nostalgic, but it's really darn hard. Now, on the flip side, I tell people all the time, let your customers romanticize it to the ends of the earth. Play off of it. It's fine. Let them buy in. I encourage it. But if you romanticize something too much, it, it's going to let you down. Kind of like, you know, you never want to meet your hero in real life because you'll probably be let down by what they're really like, whether that's a sports figure or, you know, a business person or a politician or whatever. Like behind closed doors, they're not all they're cracked up to be. And that's, that's kind of how farming is, to be honest. Like it looks really super romantic and you watch videos on YouTube and you think, oh, well, Joel Salatin does it and this, you know, Curtis Stone does it. And yes, they do. And you can also, but yeah, we definitely give a really harsh dose of reality when it comes to this is what it's really like. And it's really hard to make a really good profit. Uh, it's really tough on your body. I'm a perfect example of that. I mean, you know, about a year, year and a half ago, my body basically said, look, pal, we, we're, we're done doing what you've been doing for the last 12 years. We just can't physically keep up that pace. So we had to make some changes here because of that. Uh, these are things we, we talk really honestly about uh, on the podcasts that we've done and, and in the courses. And we do talk a lot about like, you've got to charge appropriately to to make a profit, to make this worth your while. And I, I'm still a firm believer that you can farm full time. If you only want to have, you know, like in our situation, you know, my wife stayed home with our boys when they were little and homeschooled them. You know, it was always my goal, like she's not going to work. I'm going to be the breadwinner so that she can do this because we both believe in it. That's holistic context. And we were able to do that for a really long time. But I, I, I'll be honest, like as we got further into our farming career, even though our, our business grew, that became more and more difficult because of inflation, because of the 
expenses that you have, right? So a lot of that goes into lifestyle and what your expenses are. I'm still a huge believer that yes, you can go farm full time, but like if you have a spouse, keep in mind, if they've got a job, like I would not tell you to have them quit that job. In fact, you know, I know a lot of people who farm full time, their spouse has a job so that they have access to insurance. You know, that's one thing we didn't have access to. We actually, we actually lost our insurance in 2014 with the new healthcare law. That reminds me, I was editing a, a piece for, for the magazine recently, and it was a profile on a farmers in Canada. And just as an aside, they mentioned, you know, it really helps us to and our business because of our healthcare system here. And without getting too much into the politics of universal healthcare, that, that, is, that is a huge concern for farmers and, and, and has major impact on your decision making. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's enormous. So when I started farming in 2010, I, I called a buddy of mine that sold insurance. I said, Rob, I just lost my job. I'm going to farm full time. I, I need insurance. And he's like, okay, not a problem. I can get you covered. He took some information and he, he, he asked me two questions. He said, do you have $15,000 you can shove into an account and not touch? And I said, yes. And he said, you know, okay. And you, you want to, you'll go broke, but not bankrupt policy. Right. And I said, yeah. So he came back and he, he got me a policy for all four of us for like $151 a month. And, and on top of that, we also bought what's called an accident policy because he explained like seven out of 10 major medical claims are due to an accident. So we bought this little supplemental accident policy that basically was a lottery ticket that if we had a major medical claim, it would cover that $15,000 max out of pocket, you know, and that was for, that was max out of pocket for a year, but it, it would cover it. So if it's like $200 a month. Well, 2014 comes along, we lose that policy. So I called the exchange to get a quote, comes back at like $1,430. And I'm like, yeah, no thanks. And, you know, personal decision. I didn't want the subsidies, I'm not judging anybody else, but I didn't want them. So, you know, we had to go a different direction. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of costs, you, you don't have control of those things. So look, there's no one right way to farm. This is something else we, we really, really push. Diego and I both, like if one person can farm full-time and support the entire family and you're comfortable with that, great, go for it. If one person has to work off the farm part-time or full-time so that the other person can farm full-time, if that's your goal and that's your holistic context and that jives for you, awesome. Maybe you want to do what Diego and I would call farmsteading, which is you've got a legit for-profit side hustle, part-time gig, farming on the side. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. This is different for everybody. It really boils down to where are you at in life? What kind of resources do you have? What kind of obligations do you have? You know, I used to think holistic context was all like foo-foo, fluff, and you know, touchy feely garbage. It is so incredibly important. We'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about that because some of our listeners may not be familiar with that concept. Yeah. So basically holistic context is just like what's important to you and other major decision makers in your immediate sphere of influence right now, today in life. So that might be not just farm related, but you know, you want to look at like life related stuff too. Okay, what was important for us? Well, it was important for us that my wife stay home. So that meant single income. Uh, it was important that she homeschool our kids, right? Uh, it was important that we eat organically and locally as best we could. You know, those were all holistic pieces of context. Okay, so what does that mean? Okay, well, that means we're driving old cars. 
right? We're not taking a family vacation. You know, we're doing the kids' haircuts ourselves. Like, that's the flip side of making everything else work because for me, and she was on board with it, like, I really wanted to farm full time. And in the middle of the Great Recession, like, I really didn't have a choice. I had to take this part time side hustle business and scale it up quickly uh, so that we could make it. You know, unfortunately, we did. I was so thankful that we had started this business three years earlier and we had a good base. We'd gotten a lot of the learning curves and growing pains out of the way. And literally at the end of 2009, I was to a point anyway where we were not going to grow the business if I didn't put more time into it. So it just kind of synced up. But the holistic context, like it's really, really important that you examine that and you take everyone else's thoughts and wants and desires and try to pour them through this filter to come up with a solution that, that works really well for everybody involved or as, as, as best it can. And if it doesn't work for somebody, if, you know, so for instance, one of our kids, like he, he wanted to play baseball and we're at this point, we were both doing a farmer's market on Saturday. He could never play baseball. We finally got to a point where it's like, okay, well enough's enough. Like we're going to, you know, knock out, you know, we're not going to do this market. We're going to hire somebody to cover it, whatever we have to do so that he can play baseball for a year. So it had to work for him too, because it, you know, the, the farm had overflowed and it was affecting my youngest son in mm-hmm. a negative way. So that's that holistic context. When my back blew out and I couldn't do poultry anymore. Now my holistic context is I drop poultry or I hire somebody. Right. And I have to think, mm-hmm. well, do I really want to hire somebody? Do I want to manage someone? Do I want to be responsible for their livelihood? And for me, that answer was no. And, and I associate holistic context with the Savory Institute folks. Is that where it comes from? Yeah, they're definitely the ones who I think probably, I, I shouldn't say they coined it. To my knowledge, they coined it. They have definitely are the ones that have pushed it into the, the farming sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, one of the we got 23 modules in that main course I mentioned earlier. One of those entire modules is Diego talking about holistic context. And it's a very streamlined version, but you, you get the big pieces, right? And we've got some podca- podcasts too with a, a gentleman from Canada named uh, Javin Bernakovich. Mm-hmm. Javin really excels at helping people sort through these big life decisions and like what what works he actually does like one-on-one coaching sessions with people to help them walk through this kind of stuff so the, if somebody's really interested in holistic context check out the podcast we've done with Javin. you know i'm kind of curious um you you talked about this evolution happening out of necessity from the farm being sort of a side hustle to being something that you had to ramp up in order to support your family describe the operation as side hustle and then when it started to evolve and it started to become more expansive, what did that look like? Well, yeah. So that first year, like we did 50 broilers and we thought that's all we were going to do. We ended up doing another batch of a hundred. The following year we did a thousand birds and we raised seven pigs. And then in 2009, in my spare time, we were running two farmers markets. We did 2000 broilers on pasture and raised like 20 or 22 pigs. Uh, I was working full-time, 40-ish or 45 hours a week, commuting about 45, 50 minutes each way. Had two little kids. It was crazy. It was was absolutely insane. And just sitting here talking about it now makes me tired just thinking about how much energy that took. So that was the quote-unquote 
side hustle. Now, that, that's a pretty intense side hustle. As we expanded in, in 2010, like I ended up doing four farmer's markets. I was doing three of them myself. We hired a friend to do the fourth one. We really mashed the accelerator. We, did, we went from 2,000 birds to 3,000 birds. We did like 40 or 50 pigs. We added Thanksgiving turkeys. We added laying hens. And uh, we, we finished some cattle. I bought some larger stockers from a friend of mine and grazed those for um, nine months, 10 months and finished them as well and really ramped up. I want to say in 2009, we did something like maybe, I don't know, $45,000 in sales. 2010, we did like 113. I mean, it, it was a wow. big jump. It was a big jump. And then we actually maxed out in 2018 uh, we did our, our farm with only about 50 acres. We actually did about $205,000 in retail sales. And was that sustainable? Uh, yeah, it was until I got injured. It was until I got injured. And we did, we'd hire some spot help here and there to kind of pitch in with some of the heavy lifting at certain times. Definitely when it was time to, to load chickens. I mean, you're not going out and loading 600 chickens by yourself. You really want you know, four guys. My boys are a little bit older, so I could, you know, I could pay them to help me. We, we had a, a friend of ours that we would, uh, you know, pay to help with some larger uh, carpentry projects. He's a really good craftsman. Uh, he would help us with livestock stuff. Uh, yeah, no, it, it was sustainable, but it, it is a grind, right? It's, it does, it really starts to wear on you. Now, you know, where we're located, we get true four season weather. So we were pretty intentional that like from the end of March, through th Thanksgiving, like it was gangbusters. And then we really didn't have too many animals on farm Thanksgiving through like the middle of March. We would have our cows and we would occasionally overwinter some pigs, but we kind of got everything synced up, got the cash flow figured out to where we were just filling the freezer to the brim going into the end of November. Like it was as full as it was going to be at the end of November. And we just sell that product all winter so that we could get a physical rest. We've established that even with meticulous and intentional planning, farming's difficult even in relatively normal times, but we're not living through normal times right now. No, this is, unique isn't the right word. Scary is not the right word, but I don't think saying opportunistic is the wrong word. Um, I, I think it's a mix of all three of those things. I mean, it's just, it's something that, very few people alive have ever experienced. I mean, there's a few people out there who are still alive that experienced the Spanish flu. And it's it's weird because we're all having to pivot. You know, we went from, we don't think this is a big deal to, okay, we're not going to allow people from China to fly into the country to we're closing off Europe also to our farmer's market just abruptly closed. I think we had one market at the beginning of March and then it just shut off and we lost that income. And we immediately had to figure out like, okay, well, what? What do we do now, right? I know a lot of, because of all the speaking I've done, you know, I know a lot of people over the country and we've actually got a private Facebook group for those who've gone through our full course and workshop. And we talk, right, about, well, this, you know, my farmer's market is still open, but we have, we've, we've had to make, you know, these adjustments or whatever. At the same time, like I'm sitting here looking at like, so Smithfield yesterday just closed one of its massive plants. And, and that was not the first one that was like, not, I might've been Smithfield's first one, but it was like, there's been several plants closed several places. Will those reopen? Yes. But the stores are having a hard time keeping meat in stock. And we're seeing a flood of new customers just come out of the woodwork 
And it makes me think a lot of them are going to rediscover local food. I know a lot of farmers have pivoted to online ordering. I just talked to a buddy of mine today. He's in the city of Indianapolis. He owns like an acre and a half and he's got a veg operation. He, he is up six to 800% in sales. And he's, his market, his farmer's market closed. He's selling everything through like a local, it's called market wagon. They do all the marketing. You take and drop your stuff off. Uh, you let customers know what you've got for sale. Daniel says, Hey, I've got chemical free carrots for sale. They're 450 a pound. You know, he, he told me he sold like 2,400 pounds of carrots. They took everything he had. Now this, this, you know, this entity, they, they take like 20 or 25%, but now he can just focus on farming. And I kind of wonder like, is that, is that the new normal? I don't know. I mean, I think farmers markets are going to reopen, but I think they're going to reopen in a different way. I know that my summer market, like, they're, they're going to be open, but it's going to be so different. Uh, like I, we haven't really decided, is it worth our while to participate? Should we be just trying to sell everything in bulk and just doing some retail orders from the farm? Or, you know, do we want to piggyback on like what Daniel's doing with this, this marketing outfit out of Indianapolis? We're still trying to kind of sort through all that and, and see where things are at. So it's scary, but like every small farmer I know is way more busy and their bank accounts are looking good. Yeah. I mean, so, and that's interesting to me. So, you know, this, this national emergency is, as you say, potentially an opportunity for small farmers to really meet particular needs. So it's sort of shining a light on on that, but it also, in your mind, is it also um, highlighting maybe some flaws in previous thinking about how to run small farms? Well, no, I wouldn't say that it's highlighting flaws. I think, well, let me back up. <laughs> so something I, something I preach and I tell people all the time, and I actually, I posted an article in that private Facebook group about a week ago of another local farm, super successful, super good dude, has done a lot. And I mean a lot of positive things for the pasture-based livestock movement. But that farm's marketing was all restaurants and some stores. And I've told my wife for years, like, I think it's really cool and it's awesome and it's good, but it seems fragile. Like, you know, all the eggs are literally in one basket. And there was an article about him that came out about a week and a half ago. His sales are down over 80% and he has a lot of employees. And it's like, okay, how's a guy like that pivot to keep all those people employed? And the answer is, I don't know. He's a smart dude. I'm sure he'll figure something out. So I think it highlights that, you got to be careful. And I, I saw the same thing back in, you know, even though I was just getting involved, like 2009, 2010, restaurants were folding like crazy. And guys that were solely focused on restaurants, like they were having a hard time. So then of course they want to go do farmer's market. Well, the farmer's market's already started and it's full. You can't get in. You can apply next year. I think it teaches us that we need to be diversified more than anything. And that's, that's something I tell our students all the time. Like whatever you want to do is fine. If you don't want to be like me and really go focus on farmers markets and doing a lot of bulk to families, like that's our bread and butter is retail cuts and selling that half pig, half cow to a family. That's fine. But like, don't, you know, don't just sell your stuff to Whole Foods, right? Because if tomorrow one person at Whole Foods decides they don't like you, you're out. Well, now what do you do? So I I think you got to be diversified but I, I feel, I just feel like this is going to create a new, I don't know what else to call it, Ben, a new farmer's market economy, like online hubs 
are probably going to be the thing that people go to, like, because people don't want to go shop. And even, even if you want to shop right now, if I got on a Kroger's website right now, I think the pickup time is like seven or eight days, right? People, and people don't want to go in the store because they're scared. So they're turning to anywhere they can to get local food. And my, my hope is that they'll really get turned on to local food. And they'll look at it and be like, you know, it's not that much more expensive than what I was buying in the store and it's way better. And I can still get it delivered. I think if small farmers want to succeed into the future, like we've, we've got to figure this out. Um, I, I, so about a year ago, I got to speak with two really awesome guys, Greg Judy, who's like somebody I really look up to. And it's really weird speaking with a guy uh, that you look up to. And Peter Allen, who is super intelligent dude. And we were talking about this and, and, and Peter basically said, and I agreed with him, like, you know, Amazon's going to destroy us all if we don't figure something out. Like they'll figure out how to put local food on people's doorsteps if we don't do it first. And Peter's been working on this for a while. So I think a lot of us saw it coming. I think this has just forced us to make that pivot faster than we had anticipated. Like we can't wait. We got to figure out how do we basically take the farmer's market model and put it online. And one of the farmer's markets we've been a part of for years and years in Bloomington, which is where Indiana University is, what they're, and we're not going to be a part of it this summer, but what they're doing is they actually have an online ordering system. You go through the farmer's market website, not through each individual farm's website, and you place an order, just like you would with this outfit out of Indy. And then the farmers bring all their orders prepackaged to the market, and you roll up and you say, hey, I'm, I'm Joe Smith. I'm, I'm here for my order. I got XYZ. And they run around, grab it all, and bring it back to your car. And that's how that summer market's going to roll out this year. Do you, see that, do you see that as being a better model? I mean, I love farmer's markets and I think there's a certain allure to going there and seeing what's fresh, what looks interesting, what you haven't tried before, meeting new people. But for a farmer, that can be kind of a risky proposition. You're going to a farmer's market and you don't know if you're going to uh, have great sales or, or not. Yeah, I don't know that I, I mean, do I think it's better? In some ways I think it's better. In some ways I think it's worse mm-hmm. uh, because you don't get to know your customers on a first name basis. Right. I have, and, and Diego would be would be the first to tell you this because he's he's gone to a couple of farmers markets with me. We filmed stuff at farmers markets for the course, and he told me one time we're driving back. He's like, "Man," he said, I, "You've got good stuff. I've had it. It tastes great." He's like, "But I'll be honest with you." He's like, "I think a certain percent of the people who buy from you, they're not buying your stuff because it's the best. They're they're buying it from you because they like you. Like they've connected with you relationally." Right. And there's some truth in that. Like you just naturally are going to attract certain personalities that, that dig you and what you're about and in your story. And they're going to support you through thick and thin. Um, we still have people literally that have been buying from us since that first year that buy from us now. So I don't know. I think it's dangerous and I think it's good, but I think it's needed. Like I think meeting in person to discuss a project is way better than doing a zoom meeting. And I don't, you know, I, I don't like the idea of not shaking somebody's hand when I meet them. So doing a Zoom meeting and just kind of waving from 10 feet away and saying, hey, nice to meet you is just kind of how it is, right? So I, I don't know. I don't know what the other side of this is going to look like, but I just, I just feel like there's such a, this is a good opportunity. Our business grew like mad through the Great Recession. I tell people that all the time and they're like, there's no way. I'm like, yes way. Now, was it just this weird mix of we just came on board at the right time when local food was really taking off in central Indiana? Uh, there's an element of that, sure. But like, I don't know, people just, they cooked in. They didn't go out to eat. 
right? So right now people are cooking at home. I mean that, yeah, they can go out to eat, but you're hoping that like some, you know, 17 year old kid didn't sneeze all over your food. Right. Um, right. <laughs> let's just be honest. Um, but so that they're cooking at home and some people are always going to want to cook with cleaner, healthier, fresher, better tasting stuff. So I don't know. I see a lot of symmetry between what's going on now and what I saw in 2009, 2010. We'll talk a little bit more about diversification. How have you implemented that in your own business? Well, you know, we've got kind of like five basic ways we've always sold our product. And then we've always found a way to kind of spin off of that, right? So uh, the, the, the big basic ways we sell our stuff, retail by the cut uh, through the farmer's market. We've always had really robust bulk where we're selling half cow, whole pig, chicken CSA, whatever. And then we kind of took each of those and kind of created this model for stores and and restaurants, if you will. Uh, I never did a lot of stores and restaurants. Well, actually, early on, I did do a lot of stores and restaurants because it helped me scale my numbers. Because I had to get with chicken, like with poultry, you've got to get your numbers up. If you're go- If you're traveling to a butcher, you cannot do 100 or 200 birds at a time. Like you've really got to get up minimum, probably 400. We got up to like 600 and that was a sweet spot. So we would do a, we'd do a discount off of the retail price for stores and restaurants of like 15 or 20%. And no, that's not a lot, but I stuck to my guns. And then we'd also do a discount to stores and restaurants if they wanted to buy like a whole animal. So we'd look at that retail price or that bulk price to the consumer and we just discount it to give them kind of a quote unquote wholesale price. And then we've, we've always done retail on the farm and we've done different things. Like we, we were for little promos, like, you know, if it's Memorial day, 4th of July, Labor Day weekend, we do little promos at the farmer's market, like hey, mix and match any four items or more off this list. You get 10% off. We've done holiday boxes around Christmas time where you could gift it to somebody. You could get it for yourself. And we do a pretty nice discount in there. Be a lot of steaks and, Things like anything I was long on, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. going to that time of year, for as many steaks as I can in December because here it's cold and nasty and very few people grill. Uh, so we do holiday boxes to push stuff out like that. I mean, we've done all kinds of things. We've done bundles, different offers. We've done pork boxes, you name it. But we've always tried to just kind of keep things very spread out. Now, the farmer's market and the bulk sales, like that's been minimum 80% of our business, but we saw all of those farmers market customers turn into bulk customers and our retention rate with bulk customers has always been really high. And they also are the ones that give us like the best new customers. Like they'll have somebody over for dinner and they're eating a pork chop and they're like, Oh my gosh, this is like the best pork I've ever had in my life. Where did you get this? Oh, let me tell you about my farmer. What do you mean your farmer? Well, our farmers, we, we buy, we buy half a pig from them every fall. Here, here's their information. Like there are, you know, just out spreading the gospel, if you will. So that's, that's a lot of the ways we've diversified on farm. And you just got to look at like where you're at regionally, geographically, like what opportunities are there. One, there was a guy that came out to a workshop that Diego and, I, Diego and I did about a little over a year ago in California with Paul Grieve of Pasture Bird. Paul is a super sharp guy. And we did a workshop out there. And one of the guys that came was from Michigan his name's Joe. And like, I couldn't believe like he was selling whole broilers to hospitals. He just, he got into hospitals and like, so he was doing a ton of wholesale. 
Well, he was looking to diversify, like, okay, well, how do I start shifting some of this into retail? And how do I start shipping like Paul does, you know? So do you want to have a shipping component? Um, or do you want to partner with other farms? Do you want to stack a meat CSA option onto a vegetable CSA, right? There's just all these different ways you can diversify. But for us here, farmer's market bulk, and then the rest of that stuff would be anywhere from 15 to 20% of our annual sales. How do you see this playing out long term? Are there negatives that we haven't talked about that small farmers should be looking out for in the future as a result of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I think the first negative, Ben, that really pops into my mind is that this is going to, it's going to put a lot of guys out of business. Um, They can't weather the storm for whatever reason. Maybe they don't want to weather the storm. Maybe they're close to being done anyway. I think it's going to knock a lot of small farmers out. And that's, that's part of the reason I say I think there's an opportunity because I think there's going to be holes to fill as we get back to some level of normalcy. Long term, I, like, I don't know how fast. Like, let's just say this is dealt with and gone a year from now, right? Will farmers markets ever rebound to where they are today? And I, like, I don't know. I think they will, but I think it's going to take a really long time. So that was such an easy way for us to get started. I see that as a negative because if you could get into a farmer's market, like you didn't have to have a ton of product. You didn't have to have a perfect product. It gave you a place to go sell every week, right? At that point, it's definitely a side hustle. So if you didn't, you know, do a ton of business, it didn't really affect anything. I mean, you're out some time and effort, sure. But I I think it could be harder to launch a business via the farmer's market and then, the other negative is if you can't do that, if you then can't build those personal relationships, because look, people can look you in the eye, ask you a question and gut check you on the spot. You know, is this guy really only grass feeding his cows? Right. And they can read me like a book. Well, now you can't do that virtually. So if you don't have that, that brand recognition that we have, that's a negative because you've got to, you've got to build that from scratch. You're nobody. If you haven't already started, if you don't have a customer base, Like no one knows you, no one can vouch for you. No one can say, oh, let me tell you about my farmer, right? So I think those are some of the uphill battles. But again, I feel like there's going to be holes to fill. And it kind of feels a little bit like the Wild West. Like what's this going to look like from a retail standpoint going forward? I know what it looks like right now. People are building square stores like crazy. They're dropping off in parking lots. They're joining the market wagons or the farmer's market is, is orchestrating it. I think that's the model for the rest of 2020. Now, beyond 2020, I don't know. Well, let's take a step back for a moment and and talk a little bit about how you farm. You've talked about the marketing business framework by which you operate. And you mentioned earlier Joel Salatin um, as being a major influence. Talk about your practices and and why you farm the way you do. Well, yeah, I'm pretty passionate about how we do things. So ruminants cattle and and we did do sheep one year and that that was enough and i i don't want to talk about sheep but uh <laughs> it's if it's a ruminant basically i'm just a i'm a hardcore believer that it should be grass-fed only and we do we make our own hay on farm but we only grass feed our cattle we never give them grain you know where they're getting any kind of supplemental feed we'll give them some mineral we'll give them some salt they get hay in the winter we graze as much as we can that's how i raise our cattle as a matter of practice, we're not doing any vaccinations. Very, very rarely have we had to use an antibiotic with, with cows, typically, and we won't do it with pigs, unless it's, it has to be reactive, right? Like if a pig comes down with pneumonia, and well, now initially, years ago, like I'm like, nope, not giving an antibiotic, and then you watch it lay there and struggle and 
be ill and you're like, okay, this is stupid. So as reactive measure, yes, we'll give an antibiotic. We'll then either sell that animal cheaply or we'll eat it ourselves or whatever. And the other big thing for us is, yeah, chickens, turkeys, and pigs get grain, but we've always been like hardcore non-GMO with organic supplements. And, you know, in the last couple of years and like in the last year we did poultry, like we switched to certified organic. Um, and we did have to raise our price some, but the the difference between non-GMO and organic had shrunk and we were able to make that move. I'm just a big believer in not wanting to eat, you know, the uh, nasty chemicals that you can spray on genetically modified crops. That's again, that's a personal holistic context. Yeah. And that filters through to how we farm. And those are non-negotiable for us. So anytime we could afford to buy organic feed, we actually bought organic feed. Um, but we were never certified organic. And, but definitely pasture-based. Very, very, very similar to what Joel talks about. I guess I drank the Kool-Aid early from Joel. So what about that Kool-Aid appeal to you? Why did, why did you feel like that was the way to go? Well, personal experience, we had, so our oldest son, when he was a little bitty guy, he kept getting multiple uh, infections and antibiotic after antibiotic after antibiotic. And then the doctor starts talking about surgery. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Something else is going on here. So did, uh, did some research, which back then, I'm kind of dating myself, you know, the internet was still pretty new. And long story made short, read to switch from conventional dairy to organic dairy because of X, Y, and Z. And we switched him to organic dairy and boom, infection was gone, never came back, no more antibiotics, never had to have a surgery. That was my personal journey into organic food. And just as we started eating organic food and local food, like we felt better, we enjoyed eating more, it tasted better. So that just kind of became something in our life. So when we started farming, we very quickly said, well, these are these are going to be the tenants by which we farm. And we know the inputs cost more because I, so I'm an engineer by trade. So like I, you know, let's build a spreadsheet because it's Tuesday. Put everything into a spreadsheet. Like, yeah, it's going to cost way more than conventional. Like back then, GMO free grain was like literally double the price of conventional. But I wasn't willing to budge on that. So that's how we started farming. And we basically said like, look, this is what we got to charge. People will vote as one of my Old pastors used to say people will vote with their feet and their wallet and they'll tell you whether or not you're doing a good job or not. And we just laid it out there and it's like if people vote with their feet and their wallet to buy this product and they come back for more, then we're doing a good job and it'll it'll take off and it'll be fine. And if not, that's okay. It'll be a homesteading thing. We'll just do it for us because this is how we want to eat. But it took off like a bolt of lightning. And, and that's where things sort of unite in, in, ter- in terms of the holistic context is it's, it's not just about business. It's not just about principles. It's about sort of the unification of those things into one piece, into one framework. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I could never, I would never go keep farming. If you, if you told me tomorrow, Hey, you got to start grain feeding your cows. You got to get rid of the cows. <laughs> cows are gone. There's no way. I couldn't give them grain. I couldn't live with myself. Uh, mm-hmm. So like it's like I said earlier, it's you, you pour all that stuff through the filter and you see what's left. And like that's, you know, that's how you build your business around your life. And that's, that's the other thing too. Like this is not a job. Farming is not a job that you go to and you leave and you come home. It's a lifestyle. It's an absolute lifestyle. 
and it's it's really difficult to get away from it. You have to be very intentional. You have to build intentional breaks in. I was terrible at that for years until I met Diego. And, you know, we finally started building in intentional breaks. Like, so we could take this thing called a vacation or go to a baseball game, you know, but we had to be really intentional in, in planning those things out, uh, which then makes everybody happy because you're doing fun stuff together as a family, not just farming all the time, because it, it can quickly turn into literally it's all hands on deck 24 seven and everybody hates the farm. And then you don't have anything good. You talk about it being a lifestyle. You're, you're always on in, in, in some respects. Um, I think it was, I was watching your, um, or, or flipping through your uh, poultry course and you're talking about, you know, losing animals and, how devastating that can be and that's 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 a pretty significant motivator that 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 you you have these life forms that are in your care that's that seems like a big responsibility it is and not not to say that it's not the same with vegetable farming right but i I used to joke with some of my veggie farming buddies like you know something goes haywire out there you just go you know hook a tiller up to the back of your tractor till it under and start over right a little bit different when you, when you have an animal that dies and especially like, you know, we, we lost a mama cow a few years ago. That was really sweet and nice and easy to work with. And you have to sit there and watch her struggle and hold her while the vet puts her down or watching a bunch of chickens pile up in the corner of the brooder because you get it too hot and a bunch of them pile up and die. Yeah. It's just, there's a different element with livestock and that, and that, you know, that goes back to like, I, I joke, you know, at the farmer's market, uh, shoppers will ask a veggie guy, Hey, are you chemical free? Yep. Okay, I'll take two of this, three of that, one of those, and six of these. Mm-hmm. It's a 38 second transaction. It's like an episode of Portlandia with me, you know. And what was the chicken's name? <laughs> uh, like, it's a 10 to 15 minute conversation sometimes, and they might not buy something because they, they genuinely want to know, like, are you caring for this living, breathing animal that you're asking me to buy? And, you know, we, so, one of the things that came out of this, this COVID-19, I started seeing on Facebook groups and some other groups, like, I can't, my hatchery's out of chicks. The farm stores are out of chicks. And then I, I see an article online that says, we stress about all the baby chicks. And we had all these new people. Uh, there's a couple of really large uh, poultry-based Facebook groups. We had all these new people asking all these questions. And, you know, we're all chipping in and trying to answer them. And finally... I'm like, okay. So I, I call Diego. And I'm like, Diego, this is what I want to do. Do you have an issue with this? And he's like, nope. You tell me where you want it and we'll do it. So we took a 45-minute chunk out of our pastured poultry course, which is just me and the brooder. It's all brooder management because baby chicks are fragile, fragile little beings. And they have very specific needs. And we, we put that video out on the front of the Grass-Fed Life website for free. And I posted it on our Grass-Fed Life Facebook page, and I shared it to every group I could. I asked other people to share it because I don't want to see baby chicks suffer, you know, because we've got a lot of new farmers. I'm all for it. I'm all for the, the independent American spirit. Like, I believe you should be raising as much of your own food as you possibly could. But it wasn't one person a day asking, hey, how do I take care of baby chicks? And they can get some good answers. It was 15, 20 people a day saying, I bought baby chicks. What do I do? Well, here. This is our, this is our public service announcement. Please go watch this almost 45 minute long video. And literally you have step-by-step instructions on how to get a baby chick from day old 
to the pasture three weeks later. Yeah. Well, that, 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 I mean, that is very kind of you to do that. I mean, you, you, I guess you could have said, just leave it to the professionals. This is not for the faint of heart. Right. Yeah. I just, I want to see more decentralization though. Um, mm-hmm. I want to see more small farmers. I want to see more farmers markets. I want to see more stores and restaurants using locally sourced food. And, you know, there's a, there's a few really awesome large operations out there. You look like what Paul Greaves doing out in Southern California. Because he can farm 12 months out of the year. And, oh, by the way, he's got like 24 million people within two hours of his farm. You know, he can crank out some really crazy numbers. Guys like myself, like, you know, it gets really hard to move more than three or 4,000 birds in a year. Paul moves more than that in one week. So it takes, you know, it takes a lot of people to feed a community. It's scary and sad that, you know, sub 2% of the population are farmers. And the average age is now 65. We need to really see that be more like 25% of the population. And I'd like to see the average age, you know, 30 or 35. So those are some of the goals with with grass-fed life. And we've tried to put out a ton of free information to help people at least get started on their journey or uh, maybe try and figure out like, is this a journey I really want to take before they dive in with both feet? Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you attract a new generation of farmer? I mean, you're doing your part. You're doing your part with developing an educational curriculum around that. What, what else can, can we do? Well, uh, you know, that's the, the educational part is the, that's, I think that's 50% of the battle. You, and, and again, it's the reason we've, we've put that out there. And a lot of people look at it like, ah, I don't want to pay for this. Well, that's fine. You don't have to pay for it. I don't care. I'm very libertarian. Do what you want. But if you want to cut years off of your learning curve and literally save yourself thousands and thousands of dollars, like here's a resource or go buy a resource from somebody else. Yeah. I, I always use the analogy, like you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to go be an ASE certified mechanic and not get any training to go to work in an auto shop, right? You got to go through some training and then you still got to crap ton of stuff to learn on the job. And I, I don't think farming should be any different, but for some reason, you know, a lot of people think, well, I should just be able to watch a YouTube video and figure it out. And there you can to an extent. So the educational part of it is, is one thing. And there's a ton of us out there trying to educate. Uh, there's a lot of really great people in the education sector. I would just say, always make sure that the person you're learning from is actually farming. Uh, because there are those out there educating that are not actual farmers, which I kind of question. The other half of it is just being in for the long haul. You know, like I said, we've been doing this for 13 years and I've literally watched kids, Ben, grow up going to the farmer's market every week. It's becoming culture. So for those kids, as they age and branch out on their own, that's the norm. It's weird to go to the grocery store. They want to go shop with the local farmers. Now, Maybe that farmer's market is physical, maybe it's virtual, maybe it's delivery to your door, but they're learning a cultural norm is to shop for local food. So being in it for the long haul, like we've got to change the status quo. We've got to make our own new normal when it comes to local food to create more opportunities for these hopefully educated new farmers to come on board so that they've got more people to sell to that don't, you know, have a coronary when they look at a whole chicken and it's $6 a pound, right? Uh, They look at the $5 chicken that's pre-cooked at Costco or Walmart as the weird odd thing, right? The the $25 chicken that they have to cook at home with, with fresh vegetables and fresh herbs, that's normal. And I, I, you know, it's just going to be a long fight. We're not going to, we're going to change this overnight. 
we're not going to repair our soils overnight. It took 150 years to destroy our soils. You know, I'm planting everything I can in grass. Most of it the cows can get to. We do have 30 acres of hay. I have friends of mine tell me it's wrong. I've had Greg Duty lecture me on it. It's better than being in genetically modified row crops, and I'm holding soil. It's green. We're, we're not having erosion. And, you know, I'm still to a point where I've got to feed my cows, hey, this is logistically hard to get to. It's on the other side of a road. I can't fence it and get water over there easily. To me, that's a win. So there's just a lot of things we have to do. But it's going to take a generation or two more, you know. Maybe when I'm an old man, God willing, I'm still on this rock, this will be the norm, that more people will get their food locally instead of from a Chinese-owned company like Smithfield. Well, I think that's an interesting interesting perspective. I mean, what, what I'm hearing is that how you create new generations of farmers is you you educate consumers now. And what would you tell people during this time about local food? What do you want them to know? How should they become better, smarter consumers? Well, I think, you know, we're always going to tell them about the nutrition. Um, the flavor, once, once they taste it the first time, that speaks for itself. I think the big thing that, that consumers are learning right now that we don't have to really tell them, you know, like three, three and a half weeks ago when all the stores around here were out of meat, they started turning to local farmers and they figured out really fast, like, hey, we, we've got, you know, we've got product because we're planning ahead. We're not dependent on a truck showing up. We're not dependent on all these other things that vertically integrated agriculture, which yes, can deliver food to you cheaply, uh, is dependent upon. And we're here for the long haul. We're not a, again, a foreign owned corporation that's just worried about profits. We're doing it because we care about the land. We care about feeding our community. Um, you know, I have friends that are driving produce into Indianapolis right now. And it's, it's one, Indianapolis, Marion County, it's, it's one of the hottest COVID-19 hotspots in the whole country. But they're taking food in there because number one, it's their livelihood. And number two, they want to feed their community. You know, the grocery stores, big corporations. I mean, I think the grocery stores have done a phenomenal job. But, you know, a lot of these big corporations, like it's easy to just hit the off button and really not stick around. I, I think that's what a lot of people are just learning through experience. But we spend a ton of time educating. And again, this is something I speak on a lot. Like you can't go back to that $6 a pound whole chicken. If you don't educate the consumer as to why they should buy that chicken, that it was raised outside in sunshine and clean air and it got to scratch in the dirt and eat bugs and eat clover and it's more nutrient dense and it's going to taste way better and it might actually bring their family to sit down around the kitchen table and have a conversation instead of eating out at a restaurant, staring at a smartphone. You, I mean, you do have to take the time to educate that person or they're not going to buy that, that $25 or $30 chicken or that you know, $15 package of bacon. It really takes a lot of effort to educate them. And in fact, that was, if you remember, Ben, that was the, the first article I wrote for Acres was on educating consumers. And if, if you don't take the time to educate them now, don't expect them to buy from you later. You can't just, it's not enough to just show up and set up and, and hope you sell stuff. You've got to take the time to educate them. And sometimes that is that 15 minute conversation and they walk away not buying anything or they spend eight bucks. You can't be frustrated by that. That's part of this long-term multi-generational task that we have before us as small farmers to make this thing work and to turn it around and to make local be the normal thing. 
Darby, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, ben, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. I uh, always enjoy talking about farming, <laughs> if you can't tell. There you have it. Thanks again to Darby for joining us. And thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us at acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks for listening and have a great week.